This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. saw you bowl have i seen you bowl before probably yeah you've ever seen me bowl i did a bad job bowling when we bowled today we bowled today after we did our our pub trivia tournament this fall's pub trivia tournament where we we decided we wanted to come in in the top 50 percent, and we came in like at 50 percent. hey i'll take it <laughs> like, <laughs> uh but yeah we so it was at a bowling alley and then we bowled after and i did i peaked early i got a strike <laughs> in my third frame and then just like rolled downhill after that get um, it i see what you did there you rolled yeah, right yeah yeah and and but you like you got up there and you threw that ball you really chucked it too you threw it pretty good and then you would turn back to the rest of us and i just see you do this little shake your head like man i didn't know i can do better i'm just not doing yeah better. that's me that's me mr bowler i know i, know I, if could I have do a point to this story you don't welcome to overdue it's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read my name is craig my name is andrew and you're just responding to the novelty of seeing me bowl i appreciate it it's, just, it's a context I don't usually get to see you in. Yes. And for a few years there, it was a context that I was in weekly as part of a league. And so mm-hmm. part of my disappointment today was that I am not in league form. Who knew that if you don't do a thing for two years and then come back to it, you would be worse? You're not it. as good at it as <laughs> when you do it regularly. It's just a thing. It's just how the this body is why works. Olympic, this is why Olympic athletes do the Olympics, and then they stop, and then they show up to the next Olympics. <laughs> Four having, years later. Yeah. yeah, having done nothing else since. That's how they make it to the gold. Mm-hmm. And you just your body, The body's like a battery, and you can't... Finite energy, yes. Yeah, you can't work it out too much and use up all your energy. It's true. And so we're mm-hmm. not going to waste any more of our energy on this opening, and we're going to start talking about books. <laughs> So uh, every week, one of us reads a book. Usually it's a book we've never read before, but for November, it is books that we have read before. And this week's book is probably the one that we're going to read that is the nearest and dearest to either of our hearts. Like the, the, the last couple have been excuses to read something we read like ages ago yeah. and wanted to revisit. But this is something that was very important to young Craig. Young Craig. And, uh, so tell, tell me tell me about tell me what you read and tell me a little bit about it. So we I read Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. Um, it was published in 1985, I believe. That's the year um, I was born. I read it. I was born in 1986 when its sequel, Speaker for the Dead, was published. Um, I was... I, I've always thought that I was the Ender's Game and you were the Speaker <laughs> of the Dead for, of our relationship. Um, like, I'm a little more accessible and you're, like, more more brainy and weird. I'm a little more earnest, let's say. <laughs> sure. um, so, this book, we're going to talk a lot about, about a bunch of different stuff with this book, but... The quick summation is that it's a sci-fi book with a young kid as a uh, main character. It was turned into a movie in 2013, I think, if you saw any of the trailers that had Harrison Ford, Harrison Fording around yeah, in it. I really, I felt like that movie was like, 
promise, promise, promise for years. And then when it finally showed up, we like blinked and missed it. Yeah. Like it barely left an impact at all. Like I don't think anybody ever talks about the Ender's Game movie now. No, I don't think so. I know some people who saw it and I think were found it satisfying, but I, I, it did not have the impact that kind of the the residual impact of the book has had. Um, as you alluded to, Andrew, like this book has been sitting uh like deep on my emotional bookshelf for a long time <laughs> um it found me in 1999 my mom bought it for me for christmas because it had a spaceship on the cover and i like star is... wars books <laughs> that's as good a reason to buy a book as any I and i've been thinking a lot about it the the past uh you know week or two as i've been rereading this book and i was thinking like 1999 was also the year, the fall that my grandmother passed away, and that was a really rough year for me. She lived was with that us. Your mom's mom. Yeah, my mom's mom, and she lived with us my entire life, as far as I, as far as I know. So it was real. That was a really tough year. And then this book comes along, uh, and it'd been like four or five years since my parents split, and I like I think I got it, so I got it for Christmas. And I remember reading it around that time. Um, and this book comes along and like on the surface, it's got space stuff and like video games. So like I'm on <laughs> board. Um, the main character is the third of three children. I am the younger of three children. Uh, the main character, Ender, has two older siblings, one he's pretty close with, one he doesn't get along with. That's very similar to my experience growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, the main character is an accelerated learner and like gets pushed beyond what you'd think someone of his age uh, should be able to do. Um, I think you and I maybe were both in some advanced classes growing up and like there's what I, was yours called because I was in one that was called tag which for for talented and gifted sure I think I was and then mine, there was another one called alpha that I don't even know that's mess I don't for. like that name <laughs> it was mostly just an excuse to get on the Macintoshes and play uh, like hot dog stand and Oregon sure. trail and stuff <laughs> mine was called uh, the enrichment program and it did involve like changing schools and so I like I won't pretend that being told you're smart and then like taking like interesting classes is like some sort of burden but there was like minor upheaval and just being like oh and now you're nine and you move to a different school and you also like switch in and out of classes that are labeled with this new thing that we've put on you mm-hmm. um and it's just it's uh, that's part of this book that i always responded to um i've made several friends because of this book chief among them our good friend rob um just by like knowing that this book was important to me and like referencing it as I met new people at our alma mater. Um, I had friends in high school who I became close with because of this book. I do. And I am like, I haven't done anything with it yet. There is a signed copy of this book on my shelf that a friend of mine from high school got for me, which was a very kind and wonderful thing. And I have very mixed feelings about it that we will talk about as we move forward. I know this is implied, but who signed it? The author Orson Scott Card. <laughs> okay, was it just like, what my friend your mom signed it? <laughs> That's a good goof. I like that though. Um, and even uh, you just left that little bit of ambiguity, and that's where the goofs live. Uh, and in like in high school, I remember as I got deeper into the other books that followed Ender's Game, chief among them, Speaker for the Dead, and the rest of that series. Um. I had a couple of good friends that we talked about that as a like specific concept and we won't have too much time to talk about that in this podcast, but the book speaker for the dead, there's like a, 
not quite religion, but a religious practice that crops up in this book's universe where someone shows up for a funeral having researched the dead person's entire life and like tells their story with no varnish, with just truth. Um, and that, that was a very like seductive idea for someone in high school, like figuring out what they wanted, what their values were and what they thought sure. about death even. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and that's a really good book. Speaker for the De- Speaker for the Dead is a really good book. We won't talk about it too much today. Um, um, and and yet, yeah, like you and I didn't become friends because of this book. No, but no, I no. when I read it, and I think I've only read it the once. Sure. Um, but when I read it, it, it I read your copy in college. Yeah, so. there are about like twelve different broken lines on the spine of my copy of this book. Um, I imagine some of them are due to people I've lent it to. I've lent it to a number of people. Um, surprised I haven't lost it, but it it has a like prequel. It has like a prequel chapter at the end, or like a like a peek at the next book kind of thing at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it, it's a book that hit me at the exact right time, uh, in the exact right ways, and then like revisiting it and its following books, and then its author has been like a journey of disappointment and growth for me <laughs> over the last <laughs> let's say 15 years or sure. 16 sometimes years sometimes your heroes disappoint you yeah so let's talk about uh the author briefly before we'll talk about him again after we talk about what happens in this book um but like what's the what's the rundown on mr card andrew I mean the the big high level facts i mean he was born in 1951 he's um he's a critic a novelist a teacher a public speaker an essayist a columnist um he's best known for his science fiction books as you all as as we have referred to a few times um he's a professor of english at southern virginia university probably the most important like single fact to know about him is he is a member of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints yeah uh the lds or uh mormons as i believe they are yeah he, colloquially called when he was growing up he did a mormon mission to brazil i think in the 70s and so you see a lot of that impact some of the work in speaker and some of his other books because like that Portuguese gets factored in as a language, and it's just it's interesting to know that that's where that came from and yeah. I, th- I think it's become a little bit more um negative as as an influence in his mm-hmm. work but we're we're gonna save most of that talk to the to the end of the show just because just to keep a good positive flow going yeah for the sure. first like 45 minutes or so <laughs> um and yeah he he's best known for the Endered series so that starts in 1985 with ender's game there are several books that are like a direct uh, follow on like direct follow ons from that book. Yep. And then in 1999, he writes this book called Ender's Shadow, which is Ender's game from a different character's perspective. And that book, in and of itself, like launches this separate side. Um, I think it's the last book has not come out yet. Oh God! But it is like five or six books that are much more like military and geopoliticy and. I think altogether, like less, they would they would be less inspirational for young Craig. I think if he read them, <laughs> yeah, I think so. I read some of them in college and then like bounced off of the third one. Um, but yeah, the the Ender series is four books, and then he did write like a bridge novel, which I thought was pretty 
bad and then he's <laughs> called Ender in Exile and he's written some other novels in the universe and then he's written I think some the, the last of the shadow books he says is supposed to tie the Ender game the Ender books and the shadow books whatever back together, which who knows whatever um, <laughs> and even even the Ender qu- quartet gets a little weird by the end by like, far the first two are the best yeah. regarded. Like like Ender's Game and um Speaker for the Dead. Speaker for the Dead were both awarded the Hugo Award and the Nebula Award. So he is the only author um to win both of science fiction's top prizes in consecutive years. Yeah. Which hey. is pretty wild. Yeah. That is pretty wild. And Ender's Game I think I said before, started as a short story and he turned it into a novel because he wanted to write Speaker for the Dead and felt like he needed to flesh out Ender's Game first. Do you know which part of it was the short story or is that something we should Um, talk about during the episode? It was primarily... Was it like the the Space Boy part? It was the Space Boy part, um, (laughs) which which you'll know what that is when we get to it. And it goes through, I think... The end of the Space Boy part in a in a much like streamlined fashion, mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't lay some of the same like emotional seeds. It I think it won an award, um, but it's not the same. Um, and this book is also like it gets taught all the time. It's part of the U.S. Marine Corps like reading list. Like it's had a a big impact um, in a bunch of different fields, and so like. Well, because it has, I mean, there's a lot about like empathy in it. There's a lot about like working together in a unit in it. Like, there's a lot of different yeah. stuff I can see being valuable from that sort of perspective. Um, and there's a lot of military history that's influenced specifically, I think, from uh, Card's interest in like the Civil War. He read a series by Bruce Catton called The Army of the Potomac, which is like really impacted his sense of what happened and like his like kind of like a great man general theory which we'll see played out in this book. Um, I think there there are some things that young Craig did not find odious about that, that uh, older Craig is not super on board with. Um, but before we get into the book, we also like need to recognize that Orson Scott Card is not a great person uh, or has expressed explicitly has expressed some not great views Um that we don't want to go into all of them at the top of the show, but it's like gonna color how we discuss this book. Yeah, I mean he he's written a lot of a lot of essays like around the um, turn of the of the decade, like from the late two thousands into the twenty tens. He wrote a lot of stuff opposing uh, gay marriage specifically. Um, since two thousand nine, he's been on the board of the National Organization for Marriage, which you know there is one kind of marriage that it is organizing for. Let's just yeah. say yeah. Um, and he and he's also written some stuff that's that's gotten into some bad race relations stuff and and bad like like Islamophobia and, and and yeah it's it's been I think for people who have been fans of of Ender's Game in particular it's been kind of rough to watch him um, go into these kinds of of politics and and say these kinds of things about just like huge groups of people. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's bad. So we will we will revisit those as we go. Andrew, you shared with me before we uh, recorded the piece um, an article that our friend Catherine Van Arendonk of 
some podcast that you make um wrote appointment for... television atvpodcast.com she's know. also a uh a tv critic for vulture which is that's who that's what i know her from is so she wrote this essay about uh louis ck um can you share the um the headline there so people can google it if they want um so the article she wrote for vulture is called why some artists are never separated from their work and why louis ck was and her Main point is talking about, you know, we're talking about the sexual allegations against Louis C.K. and, and that story and, and what's happened. And, and yeah, and that's and it was like that's it's part of the same set of of allegations that was set off by um, the Harvey Weinstein yeah. stuff a few weeks ago. Um, Louis C.K. is has like FX has severed ties with him. I think Netflix canceled a comedy special of his that they were going to do. Like he's. He was he was a booster of women in a in a way, and a lot of his comedy came from a place of like understanding women's p- place in like a man's world. And it's I think it's been very disappointing for a lot of people to to hear these very serious allegations about him. Yeah. Um, so her piece talks specifically about how if you are not a heterosexual white male. Um, your work and we and it's something I've been thinking about about how we talk about authors on this show. Um, your work is often separated from who you are if you are a white heterosexual male. If you are not, your work is like intertwined with who you are. If you portray something negatively, that is like on you. And if you're a woman or if you're queer, or if you're a person of color, like your work can only ever reflect who you are. And that there's value to recognizing that your work reflects who you are, but for some reason we all seem to give white heterosexual dudes a break in that regard. Um, this is why anybody still gives Woody Allen work. <laughs> yeah, and and it's tempting, and Catherine makes a good point, that it is tempting to examine work in like a vacuum, um, and she cites Roland Barthes' Death of the Author, which is a thing that I know that she holds near and dear. Yeah, um, as somebody who's, who's had a few arguments <laughs> with her about this, I know like she really, really likes... To evaluate works in a vacuum where there is no context, which is, I feel like on on our show, um, we don't do as much being of you and me. Yeah, like we we do the author stuff, and that's where most of the context lives. And then we move on to the work itself, and we talk about, oh, like here's the a cat who is a detective, and everybody's <laughs> getting murdered, but the author is like a huge Islam- Islamophobe and a horrible person. Yeah, <laughs> like I think we try to have it both ways, and usually that's successful. I don't know. And it feels bringing, worth bringing up because of some of the stuff we've alerted, alluded to with Card. Um, and there's a great quote that uh, that I want to pull out of Catherine's piece. And this is specifically to CK, so I'll put brackets around what I need to. But um, she says, Once it's clear that an artist's art is utterly, inextricably intertwined with, in this case, predatory behavior, um, surely separating art from artist becomes an unconscionable and critically unethical distinction. Um, so in the, in the case of Card, you saw folks protesting or uh, boycotting the Ender's Game film because they did not want any of their ticket money to go to someone who was uh, attacking gay marriage or gay rights. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's certainly one reason why I would not advocate for anybody listening to this podcast to pick up a copy of Ender's Game like new. I would send you to your library. I would send you to used bookstores. I would ask that you donate to a gay rights organization in your neighborhood um, to offset anything you might spend on this book. Um, but that she, she brings that up, 
and I and I think of that with Card it also because the things in the Ender Shadow series that get really geopolitical and kind of neocony in their like foreign politics in ways that I'm personally uncomfortable with um really ended up turning so me for off for our for our um non-american oh, sure. listeners can you just like highlight what that what that means just real like, quick it, it's a sort of uh George W Bush foreign policy supporting the war on terror basically yeah yeah and and the expansion of democracy into every place we can we can bomb it into yeah american american democracy in whatever mm-hmm. air quotes you need yeah. um and that has kind of caused me that caused me to bounce off that series real hard um and so Catherine's sentiment there certainly resonated with me in regards to card so we'll talk about as we talk about the plot of this book and what happens in it and what it's up to i think some ways in which it, it, it is still achieving goals that card has largely moved on from um and why it is disappointing to, to watch him like leave some really lovely stuff in the dust um, okay so let's take a quick break, and then we'll actually get into the book. Sounds good. Hey, Andrew, this week we are sponsored by our good friends at Squarespace. Do you know what they do? Uh, they take a space and they make a square. They also help you make beautiful websites. Uh, you can use well, their that's nice of them. That's a nice value add in addition to their primary service, <laughs> which is to make spaces square. Yeah, you can showcase your work. You can turn your cool idea into a new website. You can sell products and services of all kinds and promote your business and lots more. Uh, you know, get your wedding on into the digital sphere using Squarespace. <laughs> they will give you beautiful templates. They have e-commerce tools. It's optimized for mobile. So like if people want to learn about your wedding on their phone, they, they can do it right then and there uh, as long as they have a smartphone. Um, they've got... You never have to patch anything. You yep. got, don't got to worry about code. And you get 24-7 award-winning customer support if you ever have any questions about anything at all, which is nice. Yes, which we have used for our website, OverduePodcast.com. We have both used Squarespace and their illustrious products for our own wedding websites. Um, yeah, we, we trust them and, and we, we like what they're up to. So you, and I don't know that I've ever, I've ever heard anybody saying like, I hate Squarespace. (laughs) (laughs) I really don't think, I don't really don't think I've heard anybody saying a bad word about them in in any medium across time. No, no. In fact, which I'm not just saying because they're (laughs) supporting the show this week. Like, I really don't think I've ever seen that. No. And they're, they're always adding new stuff and uh, are really responsive if you have questions or concerns. So uh, if you, the listener, uh, want to put your ideas up on the web, you should check out Squarespace, Square, mm, check out squarespace.com for a free trial. <laughs> and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace, make it yourself. So Craig, let's let's just start with what Ender's Game is about. What is this what is this book? This book is about a kid who gets taken to space so he could save the world. And, okay. Which is you go to space, you figure you gotta save more than one world, but really he's just gotta save Earth. His name is Ender. Remind me if like his name is Andrew and yes. people pronounce it Ender. Okay. Yes, his name is Andrew Wigan. Uh, I've never had that. 
problem. <laughs> his older, he has two older siblings, Valentine and Peter, and I think growing up, Val pronounced it as Ender, so he takes that nickname himself. And when the book opens, he's six years old, and the first thing that happens to him is that he's lied to by an adult. Now, this will become important later. I feel like that's, um, that that has almost got to be the first thing that any <laughs> child remembers in retrospect. He has a thing attached to his head called a monitor that's like, I guess, like in the 1980s future of this book is like an like iWatch, iPhone watch, like plugged into your Apple head. watch? Yeah. And... Some people who work for the government are, like, monitoring him through it. They can, like, see what he sees, hear what he hears, and they can also, like, do body, you know, biometric monitoring or whatever. And the reason he has it is that he's being evaluated for this program where kids go up into space and learn how to fight in space wars against uh, a species referred to as the buggers, um, which is like a space insect. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the book says like, what if instead of humans, like crickets evolved or something? Like, sure. what if like Earth just played? What a if joke? you're playing Sim Earth? Yeah, and you put down a monolith or whatever on a bug, and it evolved into the sentient species. Yes, yes. Um, and in the world of this book, like there have been two invasions by the buggers where they sent an expeditionary force, killed some people, and then they sent what looked like a colonizing force uh, and killed a bunch of people. So everyone on Earth is prepping for the third invasion, and they're looking for, for whatever reason, kids to like become commanders, and they're grooming them from a very young age. And Ender is unique because, A, he's six and super smart, and, B, he is the third of three uh, children and in this brave new world that we're living in thirds are technically illegal there's like population controls in america and some other countries so he was basically requisitioned by the government um to exist because i his... like that like it you're illegal which doesn't mean <laughs> that you can't exist it just means that you we can do whatever we want with you yes that's so like from in birth, the event that you exist you belong to us uh-huh um because his older brother peter is like too evil to be good for the program sure. and his older sister val or valentine is too nice to be part of the program and so he kind of turns Ender's out just he's right. Just right. Yeah, don't, um, you, don't you hate it when you go into like a preschool to have like a to have an evaluation, and they come back to you and they're just like, you know, your kid is very intelligent, but they're just too evil to be part of our program. Too evil. They're just too evil. And so I think at this point, Peter's like ten, Val is eight, I think Ender is six, and they take the monitor off. And when and obviously he's getting like hassled by kids in class because you're not supposed to have monitors like that late in your life. And these kids try to beat him up in the hallway and he like kicks the crap out of this kid. He's like six and he pummels this kid Stilson um, and then like has to go home. And that happens after the monitor's gone. And then the next day the people from the military show up and they're like, hey, we heard you killed. We almost you almost killed that kid. Um you're right for our program. <laughs> like Boy, the t- I'm getting a lot of mixed signals. Like kids can be too evil for the program, but if you kill another kid, it's like 
a test that you passed by accident? Yeah, and so this test comes up a couple of times throughout the book is they put Ender in situations where he doesn't believe anyone is going to save him. So they take away the monitor and no one is watching him anymore. So these kids that hate him are now like ripe to be more violent and he has to save himself. And the thing that Ender realizes in that moment is that he doesn't just want to win this fight. He wants to win every fight all at once. So he never wants to be picked on again by these kids. So he's going to beat the crap out of this kid until like he'll never come back at him. Um, so those two themes, this like Ender as like finish the fight from the first round and teachers will never save you um, is are like two recurring elements of the, of the book. So uh, they take him up into space and his parents are like fine with it, I guess. <laughs> like they knew it was going to happen. My memory of his parents from this book is nothing. Like yeah. I don't feel like they they factor in super heavily. No, and and he like he also knows when when the when the guy Colonel Graff, um, who's the main military guy, is like, "Hey, we're going to take by you. Harrison Ford in the movie." I believe. Yes, yes. Who's like, "We're going to take you to space," and he's like, "But I'll be sad." And Colonel Graff's like, "I mean." You're not going to miss your parents. We both know that you don't like your parents. Listen, everybody's sad all the time, kid. <laughs> uh, it's like you're going to miss your sister, and that's reasonable. Um, and you also hate your brother because he wants to kill you, He's and too that's evil. real. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, we're going to take you to space, and it's going to be fine. Also, you can't really refuse us because you exist because we requisitioned you. So come to space, kid. Uh, and that begins this practice where even on the shuttle up into space, Graf does this thing where he like he calls Ender and like gets a right answer from Ender, and it's a thing that makes all the kids hate him. And so, hey, en- hey Ender, yeah, hate Ender. Like he's like, why is Ender the only one who understands how like zero G works or something? So they like the the whoever's doing the program is setting Ender up in opposition to all the other kids. Correct. Um, and at this point, you also know from the one of the things that Card does in all of these chapters is he starts every chapter with a dialogue between two adults that is presumably like some sort of recording or other sort of chatter in some sort of like message room between usually Colonel Graf and another member of the military. And all they're talking and it's like, about, Hey, Hey, with two eyes. And then the other one is like emoji winky face. And it's like, Hey, you up? <laughs> <laughs> Lol. Sup girl. I found the, the guy to lead our military. <laughs> He's six. <laughs> Let's go. Uh, all they're talking about is the fact that Ender is basically their savior and they need to prepare him for the war. And so they have a bunch of extreme teaching techniques that one of which is isolate him from everyone and the other of which is never let him trust us because he needs to be able to save himself. Mm-hmm. Um, so they send him the up. Other, the other one is let him watch a bunch of like slim good body videos <laughs> in class. So he learns all about the human body. Yeah. He does. He does need to learn about the human body. He is six, after all. He has a lot to learn. I'm trying to remember the kind of things we were doing when I was six. And it was like, here's how to count to ten in Spanish. And here's a bunch of slim good body videos. (laughs) I don't know what I was doing when I was six. I think I was in first grade. Um, I think that was the year I got in trouble for 
doodling on the ceiling. I don't really Uh-oh. know. <laughs> How did that happen? I was bored. And it wasn't the ceiling. It was the wall in the kitchen. I was just drawing on it with a pencil. And I got in trouble. It's right. not a big deal. <laughs> okay. No big deal. Uh, But like, so Ender even, he gets to battle school. And battle school is this like big rotating spaceship above Earth. Um. They use the rotation to create gravity, which I thought always thought was kind of neat, like centrifugal or centripetal force, whichever one is the correct force. Centrifugal is is the force that I know. Yeah, it, it's what helps them. It's like a, I guess it's like a big tube or like a big wheel is the is the space station, and then there are these zero g rooms closer to the center uh, that are called the battle room, and that is like the what they refer to as the game um where it's like space laser tag really uh and all of the kids are training to participate in this game and at first ender doesn't get to play it because he's in this little like group of launchies where he meets his friends ali and shen and there's a group there's a kid that bullies him and he kind of neutralizes that kid uh and after maybe a year at most Ender gets promoted into what one of the armies, and the armies are like the laser tag teams that mm-hmm. play in this game. And again, he is sent way too early. He's too young to get sent up. Um, and he meets this guy named Bonzo, uh, Bonzo Madrid. <laughs> Who's a skeleton. <laughs> He's a very uh, pompous Spanish boy. Mm-hmm. Um, and... He's not a great commander. He has some subordinates that are way better than him, and that's how he wins. Um, and his whole idea is that he's like he's upset that they sent Ender to him because everyone assumes that Ender's just a waste of space. And uh, they sent Ender to him so that he would lose, and he's determined not to use Ender in any effective way whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And in one of the first battles, uh, Ender like gets sent into the zero G room basically just to like die, just to like lose and not matter at all. Um, but he doesn't like, he gets sent to the top of the standings cause he doesn't shoot. And so he doesn't miss anyone. He's also not like permanently eliminated cause he only gets partially froze. Let's talk about how this zero G room works. And okay. how much do you remember of this? I remember that the enemy's gate is down. Yeah, so that's the thing. That's that, the main thing. <laughs> that's the main thing, and it gives me, ch- it gave me chills when I read it because I was like, I got nostalgia chills. So the big thing that, and it, it does strike me as weird that no one thought of this before Ender. It's just a, a zero grav room where a bunch of kids like jump around and try to like fake laser tag kill all the other kids. Yes. And so you ha- you get from your entry point and you have to eliminate all of the other team and have enough people on your team to quote unquote em- like open the enemy's gate, which you have to have five people left to go through like the door that they came in. And how many um, people does each team have? on? Uh, 40, I think. Oh, OK. OK. So, yeah. And Ender realizes that, like, using the up, down, left, right from the hallway is useless. The main thing that you can do is orient yourself to the enemy's gate, which, as you said, is down. So, Wait, like, so it, nobody figured out how to orient themselves I, relative to anything before Ender did. I don't know what they used to do. <laughs> I guess they used to, like, orient based they on the hallway. They just got out of compass and, like, I don't know. 
I can't. I don't know. I guess they would like oh, gee, orient. It's all shucks. It's all. It's all twisty. I don't know where I am. Um, <laughs> the other thing that also seems weird is that like all of the the armies are organized into what are called tunes, like short for platoons, and they practice like formations, which feels like uh, old timey war versus guerrilla warfare. Because one mm. of the other uh innovations that as ender grows up he puts into place is like smaller groups of kids moving in different patterns and like not moving in patterns at all um because like in the battle room there are like big boxes that that you can use for cover and stuff Mm -hmm. um and so some of the innovations like you said like orienting yourself to the enemy's gate uh, coming up with a different army configuration and like using troops differently feel a little like mm, feel someone... a little obvious. Yes, I guess, like uh, this. If you've got an army of six year olds, <laughs> I guess it makes sense that people wouldn't like their critical thinking skills yeah, would not sure. be the most developed. I guess <laughs> like that's the most that's that's as far out as I can go to meet Orson Scott Card on this one. Yeah, sure. Uh, so the the arc of him participating in these battles is that in the second battle with Bonzo, um, he I can just he, see a cartoon <laughs> skeleton. <laughs> he manages to not get completely eliminated, even though he's partially frozen, and he eliminates enough guys from the enemy's team that they can't complete the ending ritual, and the game ends in a draw. And okay. Bones, Bonzo is humiliated that this happened that the one soldier that he never wanted to use like did this to show him up and so bonzo becomes like a mortal enemy of enders that that comes up later mm-hmm. um ender is also like running his own trainings with some of his buddies from like the kindergarten class <laughs> um and like he he's like going back and practicing with kids who aren't even in armies yet and it's like looked down on at one point they all get like attacked in 0G and and again no teachers show up so they have to like fight their way out um and ender is again taught the lesson that no one's ever going to save him right um then there's like a time jump and you get this weird interlude that was not a part of the original short story uh that really presages a lot presage uh is a precursor to a lot of the stuff that (laughs) comes up in the later enders books that i don't like as much is this the section where like peter and valentine are are like taking over the world yeah chat room or something yeah so there's like a whole version of the internet from the 80s where like a 12 year old and a 10 year old invent personalities that basically are like running blogs that uh argue for political change on planet earth um they basically engage in what are like meme wars um i don't i only glad that orson scott card invented breitbart like 30 years this is a so this is a thing that they say and part of it is like the the main thing about all these wigan children all three of them is that they can they are very empathetic. They can understand how people think and what they want. Well, they're hear. very, they're very, and which makes them very persuasive. Yes, right? like makes people want to follow them, which yes. is key to their charisma and like understanding why people want to be around them and 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 do what they say in the first place. Yeah, and so Peter uh, and Val come up with these uh, personas called Locke and Demosthenes, 
And Peter says to Val when he's convincing her to sign on, he says, haven't you ever thought of a phrase, a clever thing to say and said it, and then two weeks or a month later you hear some adult saying it, or another adult, both of them strangers, or you see it on a video or pick it up on a net? And she's like, I always thought I heard it before. And he's like, no, you were wrong. There are maybe two or 3,000 people in the world as smart as us. Uh, and so he goes on to make the argument that like they are going to be the people advancing the kind of cultural and political agenda which is this cold war 2.0 thing that sure. that card is cooked up where everyone on earth united against the buggers and america is running the space fleet and russia is running what is called the warsaw pact and everyone there are like troop movements that everyone can tell that as soon as this third war is over with stuff on earth is going to go to crap right and uh somehow this these preteens are going to be there <laughs> to like pick up what's left <laughs> uh and that only comes back it comes back a little bit later as like ender is like trying to figure out what he's fighting for on I earth remember, i remember it being like a fairly common chapter break kind of thing yeah yeah like it doesn't happen a ton but it happens a few times and it, it, at this point in the book, it also serves a good time jump because then you come back to Ender and he's been in one or two armies. He's made a couple other friends. Um, Petra, who's the one of the few girls that you meet in battle school. Um, he's under her command in one army. And then, of course, he gets promoted to commander at the age of nine and a half. Um, oh, man, that is quite a time jump. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he gets handed this like ragtag team that is a mix of people of like what they call launchies who are like kindergartners and like folks who haven't graduated yet because they're people not. Who know, so people who nobody wants. Yeah. A ragtag band of misfits. Yes. Um, you might say. And one of them is this character named Bean, who's this like little kid who's very smart. And Bean becomes. <laughs> I'm going to go on on a little bit of a rant here, Andrew. Bean becomes the focal point of this other Ender series. And like the point that the one that when you meet Bean and how Ender treats him, he sees himself treating Bean the way that teachers taught like treated Ender and he both hates it and recognizes its utility. Like he right. is forging Bean into the commander that Bean could be, but he also realizes that he is like cutting Bean off from ever having friends. And then the Bean books come back and they're like, well, actually, Bean is the smartest one all along. And everything that Ender did, he only did because Bean was there. There's a whole chapter in one of the Bean books where he handpicked Ender's army for him because the teachers told him to. And I hate it so much. I hate it <laughs> because in Ender's game, like the teachers pick this garbage army for him and he turns them into the best army that's ever played the game. And that like is because of who Ender is. And the idea that it's because of like some secret bean homework like <laughs> makes me really upset. <laughs> and well, I mean has. there there are retcons that compromise the integrity of the original work and there are retcons that don't. And this is definitely a retcon that does. I think so personally. I'm I'm I think there are people who, who might disagree including Orson Scott Card, but <laughs> I'm good with He's that not one. Here, He's not we're here. We're not going to let him on the show. So, <laughs> so one of the things that happens as soon as Ender becomes uh, a commander is that it becomes clear, and it it's one of those things where like 
I always think about this when we talk about uh, when I talk to people about Harry Potter, and you realize that Quidditch is just a game that was invented for Harry to look cool. Yeah, um, it was. Everyone, I was, I, I'm reading Harry Potter for next week, and yeah, Quidditch is that <laughs> fantasy that every kid has that there's gonna be something, anything that they like try for the first time and they're instantly good at it and without doing any practice and every like all their friends and enemies are there to like see how good they are at it and be like jealous and that's a hundred percent exactly what it is and so what starts to happen is that the teachers are rushing ender because they need him to be ready but they also are basically breaking the game to run him through the gauntlet so usually the battle room matches would happen every you know two or three times a week at most maybe every two weeks um his team has been together for a month and they start having battles every day mm-hmm. and he start you know he's taught them all of his tricks he ends up starting to watch videos of the bugger wars to try and come up with new strategies because he knows that he's going to end up fighting the buggers and these are like the original wars that yes. happened on or around earth yes true in the in our solar system mm-hmm. um and he's becoming and actually his team never loses and all the commanders come to hate him including our good friend bonzo uh, who tries to kill him <laughs> in a bathroom, and... and then Ender like plays his rib cage like a skeleton, like a <laughs> actually <laughs> completely true. Uh-huh. Like Ender destroys this kid, and in that moment, again, he's doing that thing where he thinks the teachers are going to show up. The teachers never show up, and he decides that he is going to win this fight so that Bonzo can never come after him again. Um. And so Bonzo, Bonzo is Donezo. Bonzo is Donezo. And <laughs> the teachers are like, great, good job. We knew that that was going to happen. Glad we it like all worked anyway. out. Yeah. Um, glad that we taught Ender the lesson that only he can help himself. Um, and so they end up, after that happens, again, they break the game. Like they use some more tricks, which is all like the battle room stuff is really fun. It doesn't really get to any of the thematic concerns of the book other than like Ender's a genius. All the kids love him, but they're not friends with him. And uh, some of the kids like one of the things that makes it work is that he can communicate very quickly with everyone in his army. But he also gives them enough leeway to come up with their own ideas. Um, That's what makes them super cool and super good at the game. Okay, Um, so they they graduate him early from battle school after about a month of these matches they they give him one where he has to beat two different armies at once um and he tricks them and the enemy's gate is down thing comes back because he wins by not even shooting everybody he just rushes to the goal ignoring the rest of the game right like we've all played a video game like that and it doesn't feel good to play it like that correct you can you can win it that way yeah he basically hacked the battle room and like did a speed run the starcraft thing where you just like rush (laughs) yes the the enemy's base like right at the beginning and they get all mad at you and you never play with them again yeah Yeah, right (laughs) um and so they graduate him to command school right away which involves a trip first to home for like a little he he like has a little interlude with Valentine where this is the second time that the adults have used Valentine to convince him to fe- to keep fighting um and then he gets sent off Does she tell him ab- all about how yes. she's controlling the he, world via a forum or yes, what Yes she does and and she, uh she's like hey listen we're going to run earth and like I think Peter 
is going to be okay because he's realized that if he like if he lets everyone go to war it's going to be harder for him to be in charge of everyone at once so is that so he's going to be less evil now he's like a little less evil i guess he's like, like evil with a purpose yes and and one of the things too is that when they took on these internet personas she took on the the hawkish russian phobe one and mm-hmm. he took on the tempered peacemaker one almost to like switch their would force them to right out of their comfort zones mm-hmm. um and positions him to be the actual leader when when they reveal their identities on the nets as okay. it were mm-hmm. um and but this is where ender and like, no nobody's gonna be like oh these are just kids the whole time we should not listen to them precisely yeah okay. and this is where ender lays out like what what is both really painful about how good he is at defeating people um and one of the things that's like a hurdle for him as he as he presses on he tells val it uh, he talked about how he hates himself and he says um in the moment when i truly understand my enemy understand him well enough to defeat him then in that very moment i also love him i think it's impossible to really understand somebody what they want what they believe and not love them the way they love themselves and then in that very moment when I love them, I destroy them. I make it impossible for them to ever hurt me again. I grind them and grind them until they don't exist. Uh, so that's like, again, that is the central paradox of being Ender, which is like being able to literally love someone to death. Yeah, that's like the, the ultimate empathy thing. Yes, right? true. It's like if you take Sun Tzu and then you... <laughs> Like the know thy enemy thing. Yes. No, for sure. Like, yeah, you know them too much. Um, and and so when he's traveling to space to go to command school, um, he learns there's like a three month journey that he goes on in space. Um and he learns about the buggers uh that they they communicate mind to mind, so they they don't have language. They don't have writing. Um, and what they learn is that when they won the second invasion, the humans did, it was because they killed the queen that was at the heart of their colonizing force. And like like bees, except with telepathy, uh, you kill the queen and everyone shuts down. Right. Uh, and so he's talking to Colonel Graf, Ender is, and he's like, um, he realizes that the humans are actually the third invasion. The humans are going out to defeat yeah, the like buggers. Hu- humans are the aggressors. They're yes. doing a preemptive strike sort of thing. To colonize their worlds um, and take care of the buggers because they think that communication with the buggers is impossible. Um, if you can never communicate with someone, how can you tell them your side of the story? And so they will always defeat you. Um so he gets to this new planet called Eros, and that's where he jumps into what is called the command game. It's revealed that they kept the guy who won the second war, Mazer Rackham. They kept him alive using relativistic physics uh, so that he could train Ender. Like they put him on a spaceship and just like flew him around at next to light speed so that he would be alive when the next commander was ready. How long ago did this thing happen? Decades, like 80 years or something like that. So yeah, Mazer, how old is he now? He's like sixty-five or seventy. Okay, he's an old dude, and he's kind of pissed about it. Um, I would be. I would be too. <laughs> uh, and so this new game is sort of like the coolest 
Like it's like a really advanced version of like an, a Star Wars game, Andrew. It's like you pilot ships, but you can like also rogue, rogue squadron. Yes, with the with the N sixty four memory expansion pack. Correct installs. window, it's like very very fancy. Except you can also like zoom out to fleet view, and then you're just talking into a microphone and you're communicating to people. And then Ender learns that all of his friends from battle school have also been promoted to command school. So now he is commanding them in this game. Um, and Mazer is like, hey, I'm going to program and this. We're getting into spoiler territory for this book, but that's fine. Um, Mazer's like, hey, I'm going to program all these games that you're playing because it's because I'm the one who knows the buggers the best and you have to beat the buggers. Right. Mm hmm. And they start winning, and the games are getting tougher, and the odds are getting harder. Uh, and finally, the last game, the final exam, is like around a planet. And all the bugger forces are there, and they don't have very many human forces, but they have this gun that they've been using that makes like molecules burst apart. Mm-hmm. And so they... Ender is so pissed at this point because his life is so hard and he's so burned out and he can't sleep anymore because he's having bad dreams. And he decides that the enemy's gate is down and he crashes his ships into the planet and the planet blows up. And he comes out of the VR game or whatever it is and everyone's crying and everyone's super happy because turns out it wasn't a game, Andrew. It was real. That was the buggers. They couldn't. Oh, no. They couldn't tell him it was real because every time one of his little digital ships exploded, it was a real man who died. Oh god! And they couldn't tell him that it was really the buggers because he might not do it. So, I've got to. And this is a question I had when I read the book originally, and maybe they address it, and I just don't remember. If kids are remote controlling the ships, yeah, then why did they have to have? man's in there. that's a good point that's a very (laughs) (laughs) and they don't really address it okay um i guess because drones were a thing in 1985 so it was a thing just like the kids are sending the people directions and the people are like split second without inserting any of their own judgment just doing whatever the kids say that doesn't make any sense it doesn't quite make sense the the other thing that they the bit of technology that I haven't talked about is they've come up with this faster than light communication technology that they based off of like bugger technology called the Ansible, which factors into some of the other Enders books, but that allows you to like communicate with these ships directly from light years away. Um, And so like the, the denouement of the book is like Ender realizing that he just committed genocide uh, (laughs) without knowing it. Um, And then they they send humans out to go colonize these bugger planets and he goes with them with Val. They leave Peter to rule Earth, apparently. And, Great. <laughs> and uh, sounds they, like it's in good hands. They end up on a bugger colony and they form a little town and then they are setting up a new one and Ender recognizes the landscape. And this is something we haven't talked about at all, Andrew. There's this computer game called the Fantasy Game where... During it's a battle catch, catch school, title. it is. It's like it's like a uh, an evil one player second life is what I was thinking <laughs> about. So Ender is playing this video game at battle school all the time, where you like move around as a little character and you keep having puzzles you have to solve. And like one involves like poisoning a giant and like killing it, 
And then another one involves killing a bunch of wolves that used to be kids. And the game is like learning about Ender's mind and programming obstacles for him. It pulls a picture of his brother into the game to like make him shatter his brother's image. Um, and what's happened on this colony is that all the architecture matches the architecture of the game. So the buggers were reaching out into Ender's mind to communicate with him. Uh-huh. Because he had basically learned to love and think like the buggers as he was learning to defeat them. And so they made this homage to his brain on their planet, and then they hid a little queen there for him to find, like a larva. Mm -hmm. And so the book ends with him deciding to carry it with him through space and uh like find a place for it to grow again um after he to, to undo the horrible thing that he inadvertently did correct mundo so that's ender's game and the the whole like reveal of the genocide or genocide as the book also calls it is like a is the ultimate version of the teachers aren't telling you what's up. I don't know if right. you were ever a kid and felt like teachers weren't telling you what's up, but I don't think they were ever hiding that you were killing people. No, like there's always that sense that there are like adult things that teachers just don't want to get into with you sure, because you're a sure. kid and it's your parents' job. Yeah, and and but yeah, I don't I don't think the extermination <laughs> of an entire species was ever on the like list. No, and and what I always remember from this book is how is the profound remorse that Ender feels after all of these acts of violence. Um, but I did encounter a reading of this book uh, after reading it for the show that like. It paints him as this kind of morally clean, d- evil dictator general. <laughs> like, sure. if like he, he can do whatever he wants, but c- because he feels bad for it, it's because he feels bad about it, it's fine. And and because none of the situations in the book, as presented, are quote unquote his fault. Like sure. the teachers have steered him into all of these situations, and certainly the teachers are painted as being culpable here, but they don't. We don't really see them suffering consequences. Um, and Ender suffers like personal consequences. But like you do find later on in the book, like after millennia have passed, he becomes like a mythological evil figure and is not like he distances himself from the name Ender because Ender becomes like evil on earth or Yeah, like in the colonies they refer to Ender as the genocide, like as a thing that humanity did that it needs to atone for. Um, ah. which again this gets into my larger issue with what I like about this book and the Ender's books and what I'm so troubled with vis-a-vis Mr. Card is that the Ender's books, at least as I enjoy them, are always fascinated with what an other is and how we can and can't relate to them. So like the buggers are these creatures that communicate instantly via thought and so never would have developed a means of communicating with us but they like recognized that after they invaded and felt remorse for it and because we can't understand them we go out and destroy them there are other creatures in some of the enders books that are similar like they're so different as aliens that 
the whole struggle, the whole conflict of the book is that if we do not understand them, there will be like species level eradications that will, you know, rise from it. Um, it goes to the point where like card comes up with an AI character that gets born out of a computer because it's related to the fantasy game that was playing with Ender's mind. And like, she is an other that we have to like learn to understand and what does it mean for her to exist and how can we relate to her or not? Um, so like every step of the way he is like, what are the obstacles to us understanding each other? What are the, the chasms between us? How can we cross them? Um, Almost in a way that like old school Star Trek does, right? Like presuming, uh, presuming a certain amount of harmony within humanity. What are some other versions of the other that we can encounter, and how do we cross those bridges? How do we jump over those walls? Yeah, I guess, I guess, I guess TNG does count as old school Star Trek now. Sorry, yeah, Um, (laughs) yeah. Like, like the the main thing I I took away from the book is this sense of like remorse and regret that that we couldn't solve it by talking. And that's the thing that Star Trek does all the time is like, it was a, it was a thing that some fans of the original series criticized the next generation for was like, man, they just like talk all the time instead of <laughs> shooting at each other. And it's like, dog, that's kind of the point. Like, isn't yeah. that kind of, isn't that kind of subversive and great? Like, mm-hmm. what are mm-hmm. you talking about? Like, I know one of, this is going to get very specific, but there's a character in some of the later books that ends up like partially paralyzed. And so you get some close chapters over his shoulder about how people perceive him and how he relates to other people. He ends up having a a friendship with the computer character because he can talk to that character very easily. Um, I know that one of cards children, I think was had like, I don't know if it was like physical disabilities or what it was, but like that character was born out of his experience with his kids and like I have such respect and admiration for that. Mm-hmm. And so what is really troubling then as I got older is to then encounter like essays written by the dude who wrote Ender's Game that are like arguing that uh, gay people who want to get married are attacking the the marriage that he and his wife have created or that... Uh, like the fundamental foundations of our government and society and stuff like it goes so much deeper than yes. affecting him personally which yeah like, are you are you done talking about the book like are you ready to get because we are we're running a little long so i like maybe we just do this for like 10 minutes or something yeah but, i think uh, that's i think that's fine i mean that's the book plot wise and there there are, i've hit the main like kid versus adult theme I've and is hit there, the like is, is theme. there anything else you have to to say about just like where this book hit you and how it has like does it like has it affected like the way that you try to interact with other people as it have did it like influence the way you tried to like live your life like how is it, it, it seems like it's had an outsized yeah, effect on you it, and i just want to try and understand that I don't, more fully i don't know if i can fully articulate it but i i do attempt to live a life that creates a lot of space for who people are and what they want and what they do from those motivations and i think that a lot of that has come from just natural predilection and but this book spoke to me in particular because of 
the struggles that its main character had to live a life like that. There are a lot of things stacked against him and a lot of other things that he ends up doing that don't honor that goal, right? Um, but one of the reasons that he is very successful and, and why it feels like such a perversion when it is revealed to be an act of, you know, interstellar genocide is that it was because he was so able to understand another being. And at first so able to understand his own friends and his own soldiers and then extrapolate that to his enemy. Uh, And again, like that quote that I read of like, when he ends up harming someone, it is because he has identified the way that they are weakest. Mm -hmm. And the way to do that is to love them enough to know what they want so badly that they become weak when it is in front of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And I, yeah, like... Some of the stuff in Speaker as well, and just like his his ability to uh, imagine an other, and and the remorses and the regrets and the celebrations that come along with that are so powerful, um, and have really affected me. That yeah, it really sucks to watch him become a person, or maybe reveal himself to be a person that lives like. So when when the when he wrote a lot of these essays decrying same sex marriage, and then it was defeated that when the DOMA Act, when the Defense of Marriage Act was defeated in, in the U.S. Supreme Court, um, people followed up with him about it, and he was like, "Oh well, that question's moot because now the law is on those people's side." And he, I, yeah, I, ha- I have his exact quote. Go if for you it. Want yeah. To, uh, <clears throat> With the recent Supreme Court ruling, the gay marriage issue becomes moot. The full faith and credit clause of the Constitution will sooner or later give legal force in every state to any marriage contract recognized by any other state. Now, it will be interesting to see whether the victorious proponents of gay marriage will show tolerance toward those who disagreed with them when the issue was still in dispute. So saying basically like, okay, you won. Now you have to be tolerant towards me even though I wrote a lot of stuff being very intolerant of you, which he frames, of course, as a disagreement. <laughs> as a disagreement, as a defense of a law and order. And, and like, he's also said, like, he has a, like, hate the sin but love the sinner mentality about homosexuality that I just find so unhelpful and gross yeah. and wrong. So- if you're if you're not aware of um, some of Card's writings about about same sex marriage, um, here's here's a little bit of something to just kind of show you the the terms that he frames this this question me, yeah. with. Um, the first and greatest threat from court decisions in California and Massachusetts giving legal recognition to legal recognition to gay marriage, he puts in quotes, is that it marks the end of democracy in America. Yeah. Okay. And the the essential argument is is he saying that like government and laws don't define marriage. Like marriage is a thing that exists has existed for generations and has been recognized by all societies throughout time. And so to to subvert that is to completely ruin the institution. Uh, husbands need to have the whole society agree that when they marry, their wives are off limits to all other males. He has a right to trust that all his wife's children would be his. Wives need to have the whole society agree that when they marry, their husband is off limits to all other females. All of his protection and earning power will be devoted to her and her children and will not be divided with other women and their children. 
So there's a lot to unpack there. First is the stupid general stuff. Yes. Uh, all women are forced to have children, and uh, men are, of course, to uh, to provide and protect, and that is it. Yeah, and it's like a, it's a um, procreation literalism. Yes, that he also yeah. adheres to, and yeah. so he 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 presents like any anything that would weaken that essential foundation that marriage acts like absolutely needs to to like build a society. Any threat to that is to be like disallowed basically yeah it's just so ugh, it's so bogus like i can't like i can't even meet with it as you said as like a debate or a disagreement because it just it starts i mean it starts from a position of denying all kinds of different relationships so he writes we heterosexuals have put marriage in such a state that it's a wonder homosexuals would even aspire to call their unions by that name Divorce is no fault, easily obtained on any, any pretext. A vast number of unmarried men and women have such contempt for marriage that they share bed and home without asking for any formal recognition by society. In an era where birth control and abortion make childbearing completely optional, the number of out-of-wedlock births shows the contempt that many women have for marriage. Yet most of these single mothers still demand that the man they chose not to marry before having sex with him provide financial support for them and their children while denying the man any of the rights of and protections of marriage, men routinely discard wives and children to follow the nearly universal male biological desire for diversity in mating. Adultery is now openly expected of men, even if wives deplore it. Um, Like, again, the most frustrating thing for me personally about this is that he's, he devoted his life to several books before moving on to other things about meeting people where they are and unpacking what makes them tick and the consequences of acting to their detriment and acting selfishly rather than opening your mind to what other people might need and to then watch him so clearly draw lines around people and between people is just so it's not hypocritical because that's it's not he's not professing to be one thing and doing another it's just a, a ugh, it's a it's a de-evol- I don't want to say de-evolution because that seems like the wrong term but it is <laughs> it is a it is a backwards movement um from what I f- was really impressed by um and, well, there, and what yeah no I, w- I was just going to say like what what feels like, I think, I think you can point to a lot of of celebrities and authors and stuff who who seem like they, like profess these these values of tolerance and empathy and whatever like early on who later came to renounce those and I think like that's a good point. It's just it it's it's easy to I I think it's easy to embrace those views when it feels like pretty much everybody is in your corner and like agrees on a certain set of things. Like if you exist mostly in a white straight bubble of society, then you can say, Oh, Hey, cool. Let's just love each other, whatever. But then when that, when that version of America or that, like that worldview that you hold begins to be like, 
cracked by the existence of other kinds of people mm-hmm. who you feel like like threaten your whole situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then you start to like more readily embrace these limits and these I don't know these these weird arguments that he that he espouses in in this piece and a lot of other pieces. I don't even know if we want to get into his um his game of unlikely events article that he wrote back it, in uh, 2013. It was a riff. It was like disguised as fiction political riff about dis- his own f- hatred of the Obama administration and he used some coded language about urban thugs and unemployed urban men. Obama will claim we need a national police force in order to fight terrorism and crime. The Boston bombing is a useful start, especially when combined with random shootings by crazy people. Where will he get his national police? The NAPO will be recruited from young, out-of-work urban men, in quotation marks, and it will be hailed as a cure for the economic malaise of the inner cities. In other words, Obama will put a thin veneer of training and military structure on urban gangs and send them out to channel their violence against Obama's enemies. There is never in any medium ever been a more strongly coded version of urban gangs. Oh my gosh. And then like it young all out ends. of work urban men, like never has urban meant black so <sighs> much. And he just, and he ends it with just kidding. Cause if I really believed this stuff, would I write this essay? And you're like, yeah, LOL JK, LOL JK. I didn't harm anyone by excluding them from existence. It it sure sounds plausible, doesn't it? Because like a good fiction writer, I made sure this scenario fit the facts we already have. The way Obama already acts, the way his supporters act, and the way dictators have come to power in republics in the past. So what... Like, I I feel like (laughs) at this point in 2017, most of our listeners are of a sort who... See, uh, see eye to eye with us politically and I, I know there are people who don't and I don't want to exclude people who don't certainly but I don't I don't want anyone who listens to this show uh, if they truck with card to keep listening <laughs> can I just say that <laughs> like and I don't mean that I, I specifically mean the harmful views that, that we have uh, shown a light on in this podcast like I don't I am not trying to attack people of deep faith uh, or specifically even of his uh, religion and background, but I mean specifically people who would use that as a platform uh, for bigotry and marginalizing uh, people. Um, the other thing, and this will take us out, and I don't have too much to say about this except that I uh, encountered it as I was reading up on this book. Um, there are some good... Uh, I've, I've encountered some views on this book about its take on colonization um, and that like in its own context, it isn't until the very end of the book that you get any sort of like the idea that maybe humanity shouldn't be going out and doing this. Right. Um, Ender seems to be one of the few people in the universe in this book who is has any remorse about the fact that we wiped out another species that when it first encountered us, didn't know that we thought the way that we did and then like tried to take it all back. Um, the later books explore that further, as I've said before, but the, if you read, if you read this book in a vacuum, you might come away with some endorsements of colonial practices that I certainly am not comfortable with and did not pick up on when I was a 13 year old. Um, 
so that that is worth thinking about if you're going to go read or reread Ender's Game. Um, just thinking about the human race as as interstellar colonists is an interesting thing, um, <laughs> especially if you're writing these stories uh, as a white person in America. Just like, yeah, just think about that. Um, yeah, and as I said before, if you want to go read this book, get it from a library, get it from a reputable used bookstore, uh, and maybe think about kicking some bucks towards the human rights campaign or GLAD or a local LGBT group. Man, I feel like we're going to get some we're gonna get some menchies about this one. I'm here for it. We're going to get a couple of one-star iTunes reviews about this one. I'm here for it. <laughs> uh, if you want to send us some feedback on this episode or your thoughts on Ender's Game, um, the uh, one big thread we didn't touch on is, is how this book has spoken to people in uh, military. So if you have a particular uh, take on that that you'd like to share with us, we'd love to hear it and we'll signal boost it as appropriate. So hit us up on uh, social media at twitter.com slash overdue pod and facebook.com slash overdue pod. A uh, bunch of stuff have reached a bunch of stuff. Yeah, a bunch of so yeah, internet bunch of stuff, stuff have reached. reached out to us this week. Uh, here's just an incomplete list. Boven, Mags, Christina, Adrian, Cheyenne, Michael, Emma, Wallace, Zoe, Glenn, Katie, Lucas, Melissa, Becky, Doug, Rebecca, Catherine, 221, Be Mine, Senior Hannah, Emily, Caitlin, Shane, Katie, Amanda, and Leanne. Many others uh, that I did not jot down. Thank you very much. We also have an email at overduepod at gmail.com. Tell us about the website, Andrew. The website is overduepodcast.com. That is the website, like I said. And up there we have links to iTunes and RSS and Google Play. Those are all the ways you can use to subscribe to the show. Uh, we've got our Patreon project up there. We've got um, a new listener page. If you are recommending the show to somebody and you want to uh, show them some episodes that we are particularly proud of, you should go there. And uh, we haven't talked it up in a few weeks, but if you do subscribe on iTunes, do rate and review us. Um, that is a way to help boost the show and also boost the self-esteems of the people who make the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a way to to provide some feedback if you've got it and just to, like we love hearing from you and, and what the show means to you and that's that's a way to do it while also helping other folks find it so uh yeah rate and review us um craig next week i am reading harry potter and the sorcerer's stone in another the book US. about a very talented young boy <laughs> yeah and uh the philosopher's stone if you're reading the original british version Great. Um, I've been I've been led to understand that there are some pretty strange Americanizations in the Sorcerer's Stone version, but that's the version I'm reading. So, if you like, if you know about specific examples, I really want to hear them. So please hit us up on Twitter and Facebook with those. Cool. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for listening to everybody, and and thank you for entertaining our rants here at the end. I know the structure's been a little bit a little bit different this week. But, um, yeah, we really appreciate your support and your ears. Until we talk to you next time, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.